Help us keep good sponsors and save me from having to get a real job. Go to podsurvey.com slash Snell, answer a five-minute anonymous survey, and you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card and help us find better sponsors and, again, keep me from having to get a real job. Podsurvey.com slash Snell. That's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash Snell. The Incomparable. Number 251, June 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're uh, reconvening our group of people who read all of the Nebula-nominated novels, the novels nominated by the Science Fiction Writers Association uh, for Best Novel of the Year. Last year, there were eight. This year, there are only six. Uh, so a little less reading. Um, we're going to do sort of, I would say, we're going to try to keep the spoilers not too heavy. So you should be able to listen to us talk about these novels and decide if you want to read them, if you haven't already. So let me tell you who our panel is, uh, just as it was last year. Scott McNulty, of course, I wouldn't do a book club without him. Hi, Scott. Hello. Welcome back. It, it's good to be back. I feel like I haven't been on The Incomparable in forever. I know. You're too busy with your own stuff. You got stuff. You're writing a book. You're doing your own podcast. You're busy. You're a busy guy. I'm a busy man. But I missed you. I missed you too. So I'm glad we're here together. Yes. Uh, also joining us, uh, Fred Kish, longtime listener, uh, returning guest. You can hear him at the Three Horsemen podcast, which is sort of spun out of SF Signal. Hi, Fred. Hi there. And uh, what did we decide last year? I've been listening since like episode eight. Something like that. Episode Single digits, I think. You've been around. Seems like just yesterday. Uh, also out there, Paul Weimer. You may know him from the Skiffy and Fanty podcast which he is co-host of, and uh, SF Signal as well. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jason. Hello, incomparable listeners. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> Welcome back. And Sean Duke from Skiffy and Fanti and the Totally Pretentious podcast is also out there. Hi, Sean. Hello. I will be your resident curmudgeon tonight. Well, you're gonna, you may have to f- curmudge McNulty for that title, but... <laughs> I will curmudge the heck out of okay, him. Okay, good. I don't know about that. These young upstarts. <laughs> We're going to curmudge, curmudge it together. Um, okay, so we got, we've got six novel nominations here. Um, actually, by the time that this podcast is released, I believe there will be a winner. Yes. Yeah. I'm only stupefied by the inclusion. Two of these books, I have no idea why they were included. The rest, uh, pretty good. One of these books is the sequel to a book that was on this list last year. Why don't we start there? That would be Ancillary Sword by Anne Leckie. Sequel to Ancillary Justice. You may have heard of it. We've talked about it on like eight different episodes (laughs) of The Incomparable. It was nominated for and pretty much won every award last year. This is the sequel. And I was trying to refresh. I read this a little while ago and I was trying to refresh my memory about... Um, about what this book is, because what I remember about it is it's not what I expected the sequel. Ancillary Justice has got this kind of broad canvas and and you get this character and there, she's flashing back to uh, previous parts of, of life as a as a an AI on a starship. And now she's on the run and there's and there's uh, this, you know, cold planet that they're on and they end, they end up getting on a ship and going and uh, attacking the emperor of the of this of the star empire. And this and then I then I read a synopsis. And I was like, "Oh yeah, this is the one where they get stranded on a space station and the <laughs> and the swimming pool leaks." Which is <laughs> that's cold. There's also uh, a tea plantation. Yes. Oh, so much kind tea. of important. Lots There's a of lot tea. of tea. There's a lot of tea drinking. Yes. Oh mm-hmm. God. I I I don't want to. I, I, 
my point is, I was just shocked at what this book was because it wasn't what I was not expecting. I was expecting more scope than I got because the, the last chapter of Ancillary Justice is sort of like, and then we had a starship and I was the captain. I really kind of expected them to go in that direction. And I suppose it is, Ancillary Sword is sort of like a Star Trek episode in some ways. I liked it actually a lot, but it was, it was, it was quite a change of pace from Ancillary Justice is what I'm saying. And I didn't like it as much as Ancillary Justice, but I did think it was good. Well, I think she took a bold decision and not just doing the same thing again. And in fact, I find parallels with this and uh, one that we will be talking about later, the Goblin Emperor novel. You know, she, she didn't do what we expected. She examines in, in depth one planet run by this organization and the, the good and the bad of what happens. So, you know, I, I did kept keep expecting, okay, when's the shoot going to drop? When's the sh- shooting going to start? It never did. Never really started shooting. But I did enjoy it because of the, uh, the, the in-depth looks and all the tea. There's, so, there's a lot of tea. Oh, God. <laughs> I did think it interesting because you're right, Fred, that uh, this book, it, its scale is much more subdued. And so I thought it was interesting that, you know, she's being identified with what could be called the new space opera movement. And yet with this book – it's almost like she's doing new planetary romance mm-hmm. as a kind of totally total different take. Um, I think it does suffer a little bit from middle book itis, uh, which is a problem that I think a lot of middle books suffer from, and it's hard to kind of escape. It also probably is suffering in some people's minds from the fact that the first book basically won every award under the sun, including awards probably nobody's ever heard of. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I think no matter what people were going to do when they came to this book, that was going to be in the back of their minds. And it was something that when we talked to Anne Lucky that she was not so much concerned by, but it was like obviously something that you had to think about. Um, I liked it, though, because I really loved the in-depth sort of cultural examination elements, particularly I like tea. So the fact mm-hmm. there's lots of tea in it made me happy. Um I also appreciate that there were actually tea plantations, uh, and that was actually being discussed on some level. Um, but I do think it's not quite as strong as Ancillary's Sword, uh, but still a good book. Scott, I, I was going to make a Star Trek parallel just for you, which is to say that I feel like I feel like I was expecting if I was expecting something after that last chapter, I was expecting Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I got a little bit more Deep Space Nine, and and, and in a good way that this is. Um, this is, you know, the space station and it's a particular story. And um, and I think also interesting is there's this whole question of what happens when this crew and, and the people on the station find out who Breck is, which happens. And it's and it, it's an issue, right? The, the, identi- the, the identity of the first book, it's sort of about cultural reaction to the identity of that character a little bit in the second book. Anyway, how's my Star Trek parallel, Scott? Uh, I like it. Good, good job, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was trying. And, and I liked I liked Ancillary Sword as well. Although I read it, uh, you know, like eight months ago. So who the hell knows what happens in it? But uh, I, I, I <laughs> the enjoyed, pond I, leaks. The pond, the pond leaks. I do remember that. I was reading the synopsis on uh, Wikipedia, uh, and it all came back to me uh, in a good way. I mean, it's very different. I'll, like I'll just you know echo what everyone else has said. It's obviously very different than Ancillary Justice, which is a good thing, I think. Um, and it's interesting. So she she painted this kind of broad picture of her universe, 
and now she is playing in a particular part of it and giving us a little more detail about some things. So I thought it was nice. Um, I, I don't think it should win the Nebula, but I thought it was a good book. The, the metaphor I have for this is this is this book is a tea ceremony after the big explody of the first novel. We have big giant space opera in the first novel. In this novel, we have a tea ceremony, a quiet, almost a pause. It, I mean, most middle books try to go bigger, badder, larger. This did the exact opposite in giving us this small story of a planet and a, and its space station. And there are hints that the aliens are going to do something, but we don't see anything. And it's all very quiet and subdued and character and character focused. It, it's a, it's a, it's a tea ceremony as middle novel. I'm not quite sure it completely succeeded. It's, Certainly not as incandescent as Ancillary Justice was for me, but I liked it well enough because she was trying to do something completely different than most people try to do in their middle novels, which I give give her credit for. One of the things I liked about Ancillary Justice is the – the way she kind of takes the um, this trope, the space opera trope of star empires, right? Hey, star empires, who doesn't like a good star empire? And says, well, what do we know about empires on Earth? Which is that the people, they're built on the backs of people who are quite unfortunate and are treated incredibly badly in order to build an empire. And that's something that does extend to this book. And I, I, the thing I think perhaps, I, other than the, the swimming pool leaking, the, the pond leaking, the thing I remember <laughs> the most is the scenes on the planet where we see the people who are working on the tea and it's part of this you know minority group that's being uh, being oppressed and uh, i think I, I i very clearly remember the like the character like goes for a run or something and they're like whoa you shouldn't be out anywhere and it's just making trouble of finding information about who these people are and what's going on at the plantation and um i really enjoyed that that continuation of this of this approach that she's got to uh, taking the ratch empire and all of the like uh, all, all of the connections to it and how they're all um, they're they're all complicit in this kind of awful system of empire that that uh, she's in inside of. I think that was uh, that that was in this book, too. And I really like that. And there were other good things like when the one in ancillary from the other ship gets injured that the captain can't understand and the doctor can't understand why. She's so concerned about trying to get this, you know, spare part fixed. Right. It's like right. She's not, I mean, Just she let her die, whatever. Yeah, she used to be an ancillary <laughs> herself. She's like, you know, look, maybe there's potential for another person here. There's that and the, the just the attitude of the uh, the owners of the plantation towards uh, everybody. The Even the w- little situations where the they come up to the station, they try to start fixing things. And the people there are like, ah, no, 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 you can't do that. You're gonna you're gonna ruin the life for us. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that that uh, that struck me about about it, uh, I like that it's a change of pace. I think that too often authors are guilty of writing the same book again and again because it was successful the first time. But at the same time, the scope of the first book is very much like it's a star empire and they're duplicate copies of the emperor and they're feuding with each other and there's mysterious aliens doing mysterious things and who knows what's going to happen next. And in this book, it is more like a more like an intermission, uh, you know, a break in the action. There's some things going mm-hmm. on in the background, but this is not that scope. This is not about in, 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 
you know, it is it is touched by it. But this is not about we're going to go to the capital and find all of the emperors and do whatever. This is very much like we're going to pause at this at this planet. This it it, it at one point I I felt like it was almost like a, a Louis Louis McMaster Bujold, uh, uh, you know, a Vorkosigan novel where it was sort of like I know we've got this big story, but we're I'm just going to tell you a story about this planet. That's just that, and and that's okay. It just it took me by surprise, but but it was good. It was not incandescent at like uh, like ancillary justice. I agree, but uh, but good and entertaining. I thought. Let me take a break and tell you about our sponsor. New sponsor. It's Studio Neat. These people make amazing, cool things. If you're still shopping for a last minute Father's Day gift, a graduation present, or you're you know stocking up for a birthday, back to school, these are so. Cool. So what does Studio Neat make? Well, let's see. I've got the Neat Ice Kit. It's a set of tools for creating this really awesome clear ice. You can use it in cocktails. You can use it in iced tea. You can use it in uh, soda. I, I love it because, you know, normal ice that you make in your ice maker is cloudy. But uh, this the system, you pour water in an insulated thing and you put it in your freezer and it freezes and because it's insulated there's a bubbly part at the bottom and a crystal clear part at the top it comes with a chisel so you can pop off the crystal clear ice it's really cool it's like a science experiment going on in your freezer and when you're done you've got this fancy cocktail bar ice that you made yourself that's because tom and dan at studio neat made the neat ice kit they have a simple syrup kit it's getting to be iced tea time here it's summertime the simple syrup kit it is a uh, a glass bottle it's got a fill line written on it so you put in the sugar you put in the water you shake it up and you've got simple syrup great for sweetening uh cocktails great for sweetening iced tea like i said i use it for that it's got this amazing spout it is a drip free spout it is the best spout that i have ever used for something like this and I tried to make my own simple syrup kit a few years ago. It was kind of a disaster. So the the neat ice kit, simple syrup kit, are you getting it yet? The Cosmonaut is a wide grip stylus that focuses on feel. It is a super, if you're looking for a stylus for your iPhone or your iPad, it is this, I, I hate pens and pencils. This is so nice. It is wide. It is grippy. If you want to write on a touchscreen, the Cosmonaut is for you. And then they make the Glyph, which lets you mount your smartphone on any tripod. You stick the smartphone in the Glyph, and then you put the Glyph on any standard tripod. The, it's, got the, it's got the universal tripod thread on it. So... There are so many different things that you can check out at Studio Neat to get some gift ideas, whether it's for Father's Day or graduation or something later on. And I'm going to give you a deal. Go to studioneat.com. That is S-T-U-D-I-O-N-E-A-T.com and use code Zeppelin. Oh, I like that code. Use code Zeppelin and you'll get 10% off anything in the store. So order soon if you want to get it there for Father's Day. But uh, if you're if you're running late, you can also search for this stuff on Amazon. You can take advantage of Prime shipping and get it fast. Thank you so much to Studio Neat for sponsoring the incomparable StudioNeat.com. Use code Zeppelin for 10% off. All right, let's move on to uh, to Trial by Fire, which is a sequel uh, to uh, by Charles Gannon, a sequel to a book that was nominated for the Hugo Award last year. So I read the first book in this series, and this is the second book in the series, Tales of, Tales the, Tales of, Terran Tales Republic. of the Terran Republic. Uh, you may also think know of it as K- Johnny, the Adventures of Johnny Squarejaw. I mean, Kane Reardon. <laughs> now, the, the that one was also nominated for the Nebula last year. Nebula, well, yeah, was it? Okay, yeah. so we, we did talked talk about, about it. it. We, we oh, talked right. about it. Well, it's back. 
Trial by Fire. Um, so my my memory of of uh, Fire with Fire, the first one, was I, I think I said it felt like it was three three totally different novels in one, where yes. it was sort of like adventurer on a planet discovers something interesting, and then it was uh, go meet new aliens and find Earth's place in the world, and then the last third of it was like uh, conspiracy thriller as the humans try to figure out what to do. Uh, this book is less. Uh, less of a multiple choice kind of novel than than that was it's still a you know it's a, it's a a, a a military um action adventure story about uh what which i didn't expect talk about uh, sequels that that lead me to places that i didn't expect i didn't expect uh after all the diplomacy of of fire with fire i did not expect a straight up alien invasion novel but that's basically what trial by fire is and too long it's 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 more military SF than space opera. It's alien invasion. Yeah. I was I, I was surprised how much Kane is off stage in this novel. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, he goes away for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean we get to we get to see Trevor and Opal and that's true. Whenever he's off stage, everyone's like, "Where is he? Let's talk about him." <laughs> <laughs> Kane, I miss Kane. I hope I can see Kane one day. Well, then... <laughs> Gee, I wish he were in this scene. He does have two love interests, <laughs> mm-hmm. so. They're, I mean, it, it's kind of, and like everybody knows it, which I found really amusing. Like the two women, I guess, kind of know, at least one of them know, is interested for obvious reasons. And then the other knows, and then there are like nine other people who know that they know or don't know, or they don't know which one knows which of detail of the romance. And so there's lots of this discussion because they all know a detail that's important to Kane and to other people. So uh, a little bit complicated, but uh, yeah, it kind of, it, it worked. I guess for that part of it. This book was dumb. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Oh, boy. Uh-oh. Expand, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't like the first one. Uh, I thought it was okay. I thought this one was also okay. Uh, but I I don't like the character. I think that the aliens are kind of stupid. Uh, I, I, I read the whole book, so I didn't, I didn't stop reading it. Um, but I didn't feel like I felt I, w- my life was not enriched by reading this book. Uh, and, I, I don't know. I don't I don't understand. This is one of the one of the two books that I am confused as to why it was nominated for a Nebula. Uh, I guess maybe people just like uh, Mr. Gannon, but uh, or Dr. Gannon. Um, I don't know. I don't get it. Lord Gannon to you. <laughs> Space it's, Lord Gannon. As for what it is, it's, it's competent at what it is. <laughs> High praise. <laughs> well, it's, it's military SF. It's, yeah. He spelled uh, many of respects. those words correctly. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's... It's it essentially adventure SF in a military setting. Uh, it's I think it has more linked with with space opera than it is military SF. But that's kind of me and my weird definitions. So but. the first book felt very space opera like, and this one has moments of space opera. But the 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 series actually that it reminded me the most, and I I'm not close to being well read in military SF, but it did remind me of John, John uh, Birmingham's uh, uh, Axis of Time, which is about that that 21st century. Uh, naval fleet that goes back and changes the course of the second world war right Um, and i enjoyed those books a lot i enjoyed them i I feel like there's a little more social clash and a little more i mean there's some interesting things in those books that i felt were not as much in this book 
but um but i you know the fact is there are long descriptions in this book of like how various kinds of ammunition work in in zero gravity that i just don't care about i don't the nuts and bolts stuff just passes right over me and i i get that some people just love that but it's just not those kind of mechanics of he's detailing like what the weapons are that are made up and how they work and like how the physics works and all of that that's the stuff that just rolls over me i did i kind of i liked it a lot better when we had these characters doing things i thought that the whole stuff of everything happening on the island of java and the local population interacting with the people who were being kind of smuggled in Mm. in order to Mm -hmm. make the attack i thought that stuff was pretty interesting i thought the alien stuff was um was okay like the idea that the aliens are just using earth as a um as a, a it's just part of a larger game and they're all trying to play each other and so although it seems very different from the first novel actually what we see in the convocation in the first novel is kind of borne out here they're just playing it with our planet which is kind of i think kind of interesting although you can i mean like i figured out what the plot twist was about who, about who one of the alien races was very early on i was like oh well that's what the answer is this is what's happening here um but you know and kane reardon is just a little bit too much of a johnny square jaw for me i feel like I'm not sure I felt like he had any depth. He's sort of good at everything and, you know, everybody loves him. And, you know, it's like I like a hero, but he's like the perfect, amazing superhero guy. Forgive me for bringing bringing them up in this context, Jason, but um, and it's not an offense to Charles to Charles or his book. But this is this feels to me like the kind of novel, a good example of a good a well-written example of the kind of novel the sad puppies want to promote. It's better than some of the stuff that wound up on the Hugo Ballot, thanks to the sad puppies and the rabbit puppies. This is much better than most of the stuff that they tried to push. But it's in that same sort of spirit. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a it, although although it's funny because I I get the sense like Bane and military SF has definitely a um, a more conservative kind of uh, uh, tint to it. And uh, and that's fine. But when I read Trial by Fire, I think there's some really interesting kind of subversive things in it. I mean, you could read Trial by Fire as being about because it is it is more advanced people who have their own politics coming to a less advanced planet and stomping on it in order to. Um, it, it's very hard for me not to look at this and say, I think he's actually making parallels to um imperialism on earth and uh and advanced and rich countries fighting proxy wars in poor countries except in this case we have to look at earth as the poor country which kind of puts you in the place of all the people being stomped on by rich countries in the you know in our in our actual world so i actually find found at many moments i was like this is kind of subversive i wonder if people who love military sf who might be a little bit more conservative are gonna read that and not like it or let it go or what because it it, it doesn't it. it does not seem like proselytizing and like a super uh conservative uh piece of politics in this book at all it, to me I, the way i read it was it was much more sneaky than that nuanced yeah 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 i mean that is one of the things i really did enjoy about this book is the ganon does attempt to kind of explore the really messy uh political and uh, and in some cases physical elements of actually invading another country uh while also trying desperately to argue philosophically that it's not an invasion um, which is an imperialist idea that like yeah. we're not actually invading you. We're we're showing up uh, and we're here to help. <laughs> we're here to help. Yeah, right. <laughs> These are just military advisors we sent down. 
Right, right. We'll do everything we can to kind of avoid admitting that what's happening is an invasion. And there are a couple conversations with uh, with Kane and uh, uh, one of the aliens, the name of which I've forgotten, but one of the bug monkey creatures. Where he, where the the bug monkey creature is basically saying like, no, no, we're not invading. You've completely misinterpreted what's happening, and we're all going, no, he's interpreted exactly what's happening. You have propped up a a uh, a coup yep. and and supported this guy, and it, it's an invasion. That's what's exactly has happened here, uh, for reasons that are never fully revealed, at least not up to that point, or not revealed to everybody else. So like, humanity doesn't really know what the hell is going on. Uh, and you expect them to just kind of like, oh, we're just be fine with this. It's all gonna be good. We're just gonna have tea and crumpets later on. It'll be great. Um, I I love those elements. Although I will admit that um, I agree with you, Jason, that some of the description stuff uh, felt a little as you know Bob ish to me. <laughs> kind of sure. like characters describing details, and maybe that is an audience specific thing. Uh, I don't know, uh, but that's something that I personally don't like. I mean, there were a couple moments in the book where I was like, okay, you don't need to explain the plan to me, just do it. Right. Well, the John Birmingham stuff, which I, again, is one of my more recent exposures to some military SF, is similar in that way, and I was like, wow, I really love it when you're talking about what a 1940s person would react, how they would react to an iPad, but um, then when you detail, like, you know, the way that the turbines are used on these 20, you know, 2020 era jet fighters, I just, my eyes glaze over. And I think maybe that's just, that's part of the package is that, you know, well, that, people, that, people that like that. goes back to Tom Clancy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to, I used to thumb past those too. And when I read Tom Clancy, I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. Cavitation. <laughs> yeah. It's it certainly to some degree, it's an audience thing. Um, And I think that that's partly why um, sometimes I I bounced hard off of this book. Uh, I overall enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, That's not necessarily what I look for when it comes to like nominating a novel. Uh, I don't look just strictly for fun. I look for a little bit more than that. Um, But at the same time, I mean, there there were moments where I was like, this book could be like 200 pages shorter. Oh yeah, that is for sure. It it felt it felt very long at points. That it, that was just again we're doing because I felt like we were on the wheel of like let's go to all the characters and let's see them again and let's see them again. And I was like there were, there were way too many spins of the wheel where I felt like are we wait you know we're waiting for that plan to go into it into action and we're still waiting and we're still waiting and Scott mentioned that earlier. It, it, it it's too long. I did the other a subversive thing by the way in here is that the um the only people on Earth who are really collaborating with the invaders are corporate. I thought that was also an interesting thing that he, you know, if you want to read it that way, that he's saying the governments are trying to protect the earth and the corporations just turn tail because they figure they can make a more profitable deal with the aliens. That's interesting. Yeah, that felt less uh, hammering me in the head than another book that's on our list that was talking about political stuff Hmm. that felt Uh. like I was being smacked in the face a lot. Uh, This one didn't do that, despite the fact that it should have. Uh, given that it's very blatant, like the corporations involved, like they're just evil. They are. <laughs> they're, they're not really good people at all. There's no nuance there. Now they have clone armies. Yeah, but I never felt like I was being like, like he was bashing a political point into my head. I just felt like, no, we're just dealing with very unsavory characters. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, they, they sometimes will make arguments and trying to support and prop up their own idea, like completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, they're, insane <laughs> but you know i don't know it it's a fun book i enjoyed it just a little long uh, it needs to be cut i i didn't think it was too long i mean i i went through it like in 
now two days, and you know I enjoyed it. So I'm I'm the uh, curmudgeon here on this. <laughs> the, the positive curmudgeon. Yeah, something like that. Anything more about Trial by Fire? I, it's I you know I felt uh, last last time we did this uh, and we talked about about uh, Gannon. I I felt like we came across maybe a little more negatively than intended. Uh, you know, Scott didn't like it. <laughs> we we can be clear about that. I I, I didn't love it. Um, but, uh, you know, but I thought it was okay. I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't love it. Parts of it. I liked, I I felt like the world is really interesting and a, and I've read alien invasion novels that I liked better. Um, and you know, again, this, this book was not as much about exploring the world until like the last couple of chapters as it was about lots of military units fighting. And that was less interesting to me than, than even the last book was. Hey, it's sponsor break time again. I want to tell you about MailRoute. I use MailRoute. I've been using MailRoute for a couple of years. MailRoute is a service that sits between your mail server and the big bad internet. And what it does is it filters out spam, viruses, and bounced emails. Not only do you not see them, they don't get to your server. They stay away from your server. If you get a lot of spam, if you're running your own mail server, it can actually slow down your server because you're getting in all of this extra junk mail. Some spammer somewhere is feeding mail at your server. This happened to me not too long ago. And then when MailRoute gets in the way, you know what? That stuff goes away. MailRoute takes the punishment. They take that stuff in. They take the good stuff and pass it on to your mail server, and then they keep the bad stuff. And if there's something in there that turns out it isn't bad, then MailRoute will send you a little note saying, here's all the stuff that I found that I think is bad. One click in that email, and that mail is delivered. And that person is whitelisted and they'll never be filtered out again. It doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it's a really easy feature. You don't have to set up any hardware. You don't have to set up any software. All that happens in the cloud. MailRoute does the work there and delivers clean mail to your inbox. Large organizations like universities and corporations rely on MailRoute. It's easy to use from the perspective of being a desktop user. And if you're an email admin or IT pro, they've built tools with you in mind. There's an API for account management, support for LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, Mail bagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from people who handle your mail. There's a risk-free trial. You don't even have to put a credit card down. You sign up, point the MX record of your domain at MailRoute so that they can take the punishment for you. Your mailbox and hardware completely protected. Because it's a risk-free trial, there's no reason not to try it. Everybody who listens to The Incomparable can receive 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Go to MailRoute.net slash Snell right now. That's MailRoute.net slash Snell. And thank you to MailRoute for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, uh, let's move on. How about The Three-Body Problem? This is a, a, a Chinese novel um, translated into English by uh, award winner, winner Ken Liu. Um, it wildly popular in China and uh, and then brought over to the English-speaking world in this translation. It was... A lot, a lot of stuff I did not expect. It opens with the Cultural Revolution, which is probably a period of history that we in America do not understand at all or know anything about. So that was a wonderful thing. Yeah. And then just the second half of the novel, where you get into the uh, virtual reality and the the uh, the computer game. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just some scenes in that are just jaw droppingly amazing, like a computer made out of living be- living yeah, beings. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, assembling in themselves and in, in the, uh, you know, I don't know how exciting a game this would be because it just seemed to be <laughs> <laughs> it would a, not a lot be a of talking and not much action, but 
just some of the stuff that they depict in this book is amazing. And then the uh, third part, which is when we get into what's going on behind the scenes, a lot of exposition, but again, uh, a really interesting story. And I'm look, I'm, I, I can't wait for the second book to come out. It, it, it came across for me as a, as a weird fusion of Gregory Benford and Isaac Asimov. Hmm. I mean, I mean, it felt a little bit like Timescape, but the characters weren't quite as there. Much more as a movie, and much more ideas in the in the in science and philosophy, the game and every and the Cultural Revolution. And most of what I knew about the Cultural Revolution before reading this book, I knew from the movie The Red Violin. Don't judge me. <laughs> uh, so, so I actually learned a little bit. Uh, so. But yeah, I mean, the characters weren't there, but it's just it, it's just like the the working out working out of everything was, and this is re- some real beauty. And Ken, Lu- I, I mean, Ken Liu's translation is uh, pitch perfect. It's just like he should he should be translating more Chinese novels. Clearly, if if this if this is what he can do, given a given full given full length uh, stuff to work. I don't think he's translating the sequel though, which is kind of disappointing. No, he's doing the third, and that was only because he was working on his own novel. That's how right. it just it timed out that way. Yeah, and that and this does didn't feel like his own novel. I've I've read uh, I've read his I've read uh, the Grace of Kings. This didn't feel like Grace of Kings, so it's not like he wrote rewrote the book. Thank God. No, but but <laughs> he he clearly rend, he rendered a loose prose into very very good English, and it's I mean I I mean, I, I could. Maybe it's not going to be unfair to me. If this was if this came out in 1980, it would probably sweep all the words without question. Now, I think I want more, a little more from from uh, characters than I got. That's an interesting thing to say, Paul. Uh-oh. Isn't it? <laughs> hmm. I didn't have an issue with the characters. I thought I thought the characters were fine. I mean, sometimes it felt a little thin, but I think that's because it's dealing with so much high concept elements. Um. But uh, overall, I really love this, and I love that it included footnotes to explain stuff that I know nothing about because they didn't teach anything about the Cultural Revolution in high school. They may have mentioned it, uh, but they certainly didn't teach it. So when things are happening and there are references to things that I know nothing about, it was really nice to have the context available. I also really love that this book messed with uh, narrative style a lot. Jumps between various kinds of things yep. throughout the book, uh-huh. um, sometimes even genres it's, itself, uh, which I really like, mostly because that's the kind of stuff that uh, really appeals to me a lot when it comes to genre novels, is anything that's kind of messing with the traditions, as it were. Um, now, granted, this is coming out of China, so I don't know what the literary traditions in China are, uh, which means I don't understand what, from a literary perspective, it may be playing against or with um, so I'm interpreting that from a completely American perspective, which could be totally wrong. Um, but all of that I found really enjoyable. I love the concepts. Uh, I found it very bewildering, the beginning, because it's so embedded in the Cultural Revolution. And I thought I was reading a science fiction novel. And I didn't know what was going on. But once it started to really clarify what was happening, it made a lot of sense. And I just overall, I think it's probably one of the strongest novels of the lot um, and is – I think Paul, you may be kind of right that it's it maybe if this was came earlier, uh, it may have been more of a sweeping kind of ordeal. However, I, I would not be surprised if this picked up one of the major SF awards. No, I wouldn't be surprised either. I think yeah, I, I, especially because it's 
because because it is giving us a window into Chinese science fiction, and that alone is a good thing above the merits of the book itself. Scott, what what's your take on the three body problem? Uh, well, I I enjoyed it. Uh, I like. I liked that it is a non-Western book. So this is, I think, probably the first Chinese science fiction book I've ever read. Uh, and so it was interesting to have a very different perspective on kind of uh, sci-fi tropes. So uh-huh. it was uh, fascinating from that perspective. And I like books that make me feel a little alien to the book, if that makes any sense. So it's from such a different cultural perspective that uh was you you know different than my own so i feel like the other uh as i'm reading it which is always an interesting experience um and i i liked it i mean i did think you know compared to american science fiction it's a little clunky um but that's just a personal opinion uh i thought it was very good and i think it it deserved to be nominated i'm not sure if it's going to win who knows but uh i liked it thumbs up for me Scott, is this the one that you said it's it's barely science fiction until the end? Yes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I remember your comment as I was reading about the Cultural Revolution and thinking, huh, Scott, I see what Scott was saying now. Although I really like the stuff about the Cultural Re- Revolution because I, too, had no no idea and and so that was fun like 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 several of you have said it was it was it's fun to see something in a from a different culture's perspective and about things that we uh, don't get uh, you know taught here not understanding just the level of violence and upheaval that happened and then Uh watching this one character kind of um, end up in a very strange place because of what happens to her and her father during the cultural revolution i thought that was all really interesting um and i kept wondering okay where is this going and then we get to the we get to the some there's some stuff in here that's just really bizarre i felt i felt almost like like a uh, Stephen King kind of things or Dean Koontz kind of things where the, mm-hmm. where the person is almost driven, the scientist is driven almost mad by the fact that suddenly a, there's a, a, a countdown happening in his vision, wherever oh. he looks. <laughs> it's just such a, such a bizarre concept. Like how could that exist? And must he be going crazy, but he sees it everywhere. And I just thought like, wow, now I'm, now it's almost like I'm reading a, a horror novel here and I don't know how this is going to get paid off. And you know what? In the end, it is explained, which I never believed there would be an explanation for that. And it was and it is actually explained. The virtual reality stuff, I think saying that it would not make a particularly entertaining game is probably a strong point. Um, I felt like it was really surreal and interesting. I have to admit that I found the um, the breaks between those scenes where we would go back to that uh, the chain smoking cop who wisecracks but is uh, and is working class but is actually very wise and provides a sort of grounding for the uh, for the for for the scientist. I really mm-hmm. loved that character. I started out hating him and then I end up loving him because he was such a change of pace from the temples and pyramids and things that are happening in the in the virtual reality um so i i find yeah it, there were moments where i thought this is the most bizarre thing i've ever read and and the the, the characters aren't always very well drawn i'm also fascinated by the fact that it, it the, the main character in this book is essentially somebody who decides that that um 
that uh what's the line in ghostbusters uh uh he thought that humanity was too sick to survive and then they look around the the jail cell and say well maybe <laughs> that that's that's who the character is in this book she thinks i i wrote down the line i've lost hope in the human race after what i've seen human society is incapable of self-improvement and we need the intervention of an outside force so you talk about alien invasions and things like that you know in this book that's sort of where we end up is somebody who feels like um, they need, they, you know, they want to, they're building a movement to give up on humanity, <laughs> which is just, that's a big idea. And it's really interesting. And then at the end, I go, what? This is the start of a series. And, you know, I had that moment yeah. too. But uh, I liked it. I, I, I didn't love it. I think I like, there, there are definitely at least a couple books on this list that I like better. But, um, but it's so different. And that goes for a lot. I mean, it's different and novel and weird and has some really huge ideas, which is sort of what I was thinking when when uh, when there was the concept of if this had been written 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. It's like there was a period in sci-fi where I felt like it was all about big ideas and the characters were kind of not that important. And yeah. this book isn't quite as extreme as that, but it's kind of like that, where the ideas are huge and the characters are, are around. I used to be I used to be into that sort of science fiction, like Rendezvous with Rama. I can't tell oh, you yeah. much about all about the characters. I can tell you all about that damn spaceship. But the characters, <laughs> I can't I can't tell yeah. you anything about them. Suffice to say, there were characters. I guess they were yeah, people they, they were wandering around, around that spaceship. They had the little flying thing. That's all I remember about what the, who the characters yeah. were. But the, the spaceship, oh my god, the spaceship! Yeah, and this this novel reminded me of that sort of era of science fiction. Yeah, I agree. Not quite as not quite as extreme, but that sort of era. Yeah. Sounds like everybody everybody liked it. Although you know we're all we all are all outsiders in a way looking at this and and but you know I I love the challenge of that 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 this is not something like you've read before. I think that's really exciting to get a book that you think and also important to give us breath and expose us to other stuff. Expose us to World SF as Sean can attest. Yeah. Well, the author grew up reading. I, I'm not. I'm not clear whether reading in English or reading in translation, but grew up reading Western science fiction as well as stuff in China. And I think that's really interesting. Where that person now, that author, has kind of internalized that and then spun it back out into their own thing. So it's it's kind of cool that then it comes back to us. I I really hope this novel does really well, and I, I'm guessing from a sales perspective, it has because. Uh, this is kind of one of those moments where, like, they they put a lot of money to translate this book, right? And if it bombed, like, the chances that we would get another Chinese science fiction novel translated anytime soon would be pretty slim. And there's so much stuff being written in China right now that's not in English, and you got to pay a translator to get it. You can't just like have like it's not like fan subs for Japanese anime, right? Like, <laughs> nobody's gonna translate. Don't a paste your novel into novel. Google Translate. It, it's <laughs> not. No, don't do it. Well, he, he. I mean, he's obviously done well enough so that Tor has done to the two other books in the trilogy. But if you look yeah. on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, you can get electronic book editions of many of his other books at this point. Maybe about a dozen, I think. I'm not sure In how English? well they're translated, but yeah, yeah, they're up, they're up uh, for sale. Ooh, I would be. That sounds really sketchy. <laughs> yeah. Well, they all were on sale like the first week they went up, so I picked them all up. So uh, at some point, I'll get to them. I'll let you know how they are. But they're. You let me know if they sound like Google Translate. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping not. I'm also hoping they were legally translated, and he's, yeah. he's you know, benefiting. 
That would be my concern too, because I know there have been a couple instances of pirated uh, pirated stuff. books. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, and I know in in China there there's a there come some infamous Harry Potter ripoffs that exist in China, uh, which is kind of funny. Huh. But you can Google it; it's fun. Yep. Let's take a break. Let me tell you about one of our sponsors. It's Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Then Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and much more. Make sure to head to LootCrate.com slash Snell, enter code Snell to save $3 on any new subscription. Every month at Loot Crate, there's a different theme. All the items in the box that you receive are curated around that theme. Inspired by things like classic movies and video game releases, pop culture franchises, previous crates have included items from Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, many more. I have a Power Rangers t-shirt now. This year, uh, so far, there have been crates featuring exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron, epic geek apparel, retro gaming-inspired mashup figures, crate all about strategy games, a crate all about covert operations. There's more awesomeness to come. Loot Crate is a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with awesome presents Every month, you have until the 19th of any given month at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe, and then you'll receive that month's crate. Once the cutoff happens, it's over. You'll never see that crate. So go to LootCrate.com slash Snell, enter code Snell, and you'll save $3 on your new subscription today. Thank you to Loot Crate for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, let's move on to Coming Home by Jack McDevitt. Yep. Okay, so Uh-oh. Uh-oh. so let me let me let me More tell you let me tell you some things about Jack McDevitt. I've read I've read almost every Jack McDevitt novel. So um, I love that uh, the characters inexplicably eat sandwiches at various points throughout the books. I think Jack McDevitt really <laughs> loves sandwiches. I, I once you, once once you know once you look for the munching on a sandwich, you can't not see it in every <laughs> book he writes. I like the the Priscilla Hutchins books. I I generally like um like these books, the Alex Benedict books. They're fun, adventure-y, Indiana Jonesy kind of thing. There's always somebody who's there's always a spaceship accident and there's somebody who's revealed to be the villain who holds somebody at gunpoint and they're almost like i mean they're they're almost a form like formula yeah there is a formula it's adventurous his world building is interesting and they're fun and i really enjoyed reading those books so now i see that coming home the latest alex benedict book has been nominated for a nebula award i so i get to read it for this podcast i didn't even know it was out so i go and i read it and i think to myself really this is the one you nominate cuz it's i think it's the least interesting of any of the books of his <laughs> that i've read so that's my that's my take is i actually like this author and i like this series and it's comforting and it's not great art but i'm not sure this one's even like among his best let alone art in and any I, way i didn't understand why it, the series is called the alex benedict series right and this book he hardly appears at all yeah chase, chase is thing. chase is the chronicler of the adventures of alex benedict and so chase is yeah. the narrator chase colpath is the narrator yeah. in all of these Can, can I ask a question for those that have read all the other books? Is this just like Clive Cussler's Dirk Pitt, but in space? Kind of. I mean, I'll be honest and say that I, um, when I picture Alex Benedict, I sort of of um, a picture Zap Brannigan from Futurama. <laughs> Oh. Uh, um, in my mind, that's sort of who I'm picturing. 
Um, he's a, you know, not quite dashing hero, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what these, that's what these are is faster than light travel adventures to, in, in his case, he's, he's, yeah, you could say that. I mean, he's supposed to be kind of an Indiana Jones cause he's this archeologist who's finding, but he finds relics and sells them instead of like turning them into the museum. So he's got that kind of questionable, you know, is he really on the side of good or not? Or is he just a mercenary? Um, but you know, then you place them on on in interesting situations, and it can be very it can be very interesting. But yeah, Alex is sidelined for a lot of this, and it's just yeah, it it's not that interesting. It's not that interesting a book, and I'm saying that as somebody who likes Jack McDevitt, so I'm a little baffled for about why this is getting honors. I am really baffled that you just said that the character from this book is kind of like Indiana Jones. Which yeah. is possibly the most false statement I've ever well, heard. Well, by, occup- <laughs> by, by occupation, right? I mean, he literally, he is, archaeologist. he is an yeah. archaeologist. He looks for relics. That's like saying, like, you know, ER doctors are just like Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, in, in that they are, they're doctors. They're doctors. <laughs> they're doctors. That's not, it's just, no, no. Yeah. I really didn't like this book. If it's not clear, <laughs> well, yeah, and it feels it feels a little bit like this is the. I think one of the problems I have with it is I feel like this is the resolution of a plot arc for him, which is at long last he's been his his missing uncle has been there for all this time of like oh his uncle died his uncle disappeared in this thing and then in the last book I in think the first book he disappears yeah oh and so, that's right yeah and so so you end up with this oh and then they figure out what's happening and the, and there's a ghost ship and then in this one they're like all right I think we can solve it and they bring him back but it, it it sort of feels like more of a capstone to a story arc than a story and you know what i love about these books is they end up in really weird you know they end up in really weird planets somewhere and there's some alien you know or lost human culture and and, and i find that kind of fascinating and here what the one thing that i would say is really interesting about this book as opposed to his other books is that he shied away from the earth and here, the Earth is the lost planet. They go to Earth, and 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 the most the thing that will stick with me from these books is the fact that um, these people in the far future have uh, essentially no concept of life in in our time, or even like a thousand years after our time. That that even though we think, well, now, you know, now we're never going to be ancient history. We are. Our time is completely lost to these people. And I thought that was kind of interesting, making Earth the lost planet. But it's much less. You know, you know, there, there's like literally a boat accident in this book or a boat, a boat, quote unquote, accident. Oh, it was not an accident. But it was not an oh. accident. It's very, yes, I was going to say it's very Murder, She Wrote, Scott, but I don't want to insult Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> That's right. Don't be little Murder, She Wrote. No, no but it's parlor mystery kind of stuff yeah. at that point. Yes. There, there is a formula. I mean, I've, re- I've read a bunch of Jack McDevitt novels. I've met Jack. He's a very nice guy. This doesn't feel like. One of his better Alex Benedict novels, no. to be perfectly honest. I mean, it, I mean, I can see the forms, I can see what he's doing, but it just—he's done better than this. I know you're better than this, Jack. Why yeah. did why did this one get nominated? I don't know, I, but I mean, I, I would—I I have to—I have to say this is probably the weakest of the Nebula nominees for me. I'm not saying it's a bad book, but it's just just well, not—it's not. It's not it, it is it, a bad it, book. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah uh, it's, it's a bad book. It, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to agree. And I, like I said, I like McDevitt and have read the, all the books just, in this series. I think this is the weakest of all of the nominees. It's sad because I do like him in general. Of all the of all the books they could have chosen, um, 
and I don't think it's just me analyzing it under a different light because I got nominated because I didn't really enjoy it. And I, I really enjoy reading the McDevitt books are the kind of books I read on vacation, especially if I'm like on or near a beach and I really enjoy them. It's like, <laughs> it's just fun and it's a f- fast read and it's an adventure. And this one was just more like a slog and not as interesting. It's too bad. What what'd you think, Fred? Well, I mean, I think this is, I'm wondering whether he's going to reboot the series with the next one, or he's ending the series. It's hard to say. Not, not the uncle's back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not. I I do agree. It's not his best book. I like his books overall. I did enjoy a lot of this in in the whole mystery of where where are the Apollo landers and uh-huh. you know, all the stuff that's going on. I mean, all the books. It's like a Fibber Mickey book or a John McDonald book. I mean, there's you know, it always starts off with a opening chapter which you're like will eventually tie into the rest, and there's always a lot of dicking in libraries and stuff and yeah. travel and sandwiches and, and sandwiches and, and but, Winnipeg, but no, but no tea. We, we should say that, that he did win the nebula for seeker in 2005, which is the third book in the Alex Benedict series. That's and a much a, better book. It is a much better yeah, book. Much better book. <laughs> this violates like half of all of my rules of bad novel writing. Uh, one is involves a prologue that references a story that is more interesting than the actual novel, <laughs> oh. which is this dark age that occurs. Which I was like, why don't you tell that story of mm. like when the Earth went to crap? That sounds so exciting. But you're, it's of course told by like the uncle or whatever. He just tells he's telling this kid and he's like, hey, let's go take this tour on the moon base and like we'll have sandwiches and talk about. Mm-hmm interesting stuff that happened in the past. And I was like, well, that sounds much more interesting. But then we get the actual story, and about 50 pages in, I was like, this is not going very quickly <laughs> for what is the story. And so I oh, scrolled forward. Sean. You know, I was like, okay, well, let's let's figure out. Maybe some crazy stuff happens later, right? Like maybe some big plot twist happens mid from the book, and so we'll get some crazy stuff in the end. Like, I don't know, crazy aliens with, like, lasers on their heads show up or something. Nope. That's not what happens. We get basically what is a 350-page story that should have been like a 70-page novella. Yeah, I can't. I, I I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. I think I think Jack McDevitt does not. He's a feel-good kind of writer, so I don't think he wants to write the story about the Dark Ages. He just wants to have it there because these books are very comfortable. They're all about people eating sandwiches and going to restaurants <laughs> and so going boring. on going to the beach, and they fly in their little you know auto drive little uh, space pods that fly them places or you know to different cities and it's like a travel log it's super like it's like just creature comforts for everybody it is a magical place the future the far future i also found like the central concept like all the characters say repeatedly there are no mysteries left to solve we're so bored we've solved everything but then they have this huge central mystery of why these ships keep falling and disappearing and no one knows how to figure it out it's very confusing yeah that didn't i didn't buy that for a second like you serious like you had a prologue where you announced a mystery what happened to the landers where'd they go there's a mystery you don't know the answer to that question Clearly. And like, come on, they cannot have got like 10,000 in the year, years in the future. We can't have got to a point where humanity is like, well, there's nothing else for us to figure out. So we're all bored now. Are you serious? <laughs> Are you serious? You figured everything out. No, uh, not, no, not buying it. Sorry, I just didn't like this book. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sean is passionate. No, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I was just so bored. I, I just inclined. I mean, and I'm inclined to like his stuff. And like I said, it's like a warm. It's like a warm blanket. It's just a whole. It's just cozy to read them. And I was like, eh, it's just not. So, oh well. Maybe next time, Jack McDevitt. Maybe I hope time. so. Next time, I was really looking forward to that one, yeah. and then it just. 
It just made me cry. Inside. (laughs) All right. um, Let's talk. We got two left. Uh oh. Let's talk about Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. Yes. (laughs) I I think Fred should go first. Yes. Fred's read this seven times. Yes, Fred. Well, it is short. Which I think is really interesting. I was reading it and thinking, wow, this one's really moving along. And I was watching on my Kindle, I was watching the percentage going up and going, wow, this is, this is not a thousand page novel. Thank goodness. No. Thank God. It's, it's three, it's one, it's a thousand page novel broken into three parts. And this is the first part. I mean, he, he wrote this, he had a, uh, he got sick and had this weird dream. So he, he started uh, writing it down as a novel. And this is what came out. And this is kind of why, I mean, maybe this is why people don't like it, but this is why I do like it. It feels like a dream to me, and, and, and in all the good ways. And uh, basically, what happened is, in some time in the past, something weird happened in the U.S., probably in Florida, and sealed Sean off behind uh, a place called the Southern Reach, where weird things happen. And the uh, government keeps sending expeditions in to try and figure out what's going on. Um, and this expedition, you have four characters, none of which use their names. They're only known by their professions. They go in and, and basically, as soon as they get into the, the, uh, the area, Area X, things start going weird. People die. People transform. Uh, strange creatures are seen and uh, strange buildings are explored. Uh, so it's more a mood thing. It's, you're not going to get a characterization out of this. You're not hardly even going to get a story, but you're just going to get this very strange feeling like a dream, which for some authors like uh, Poe or Lovecraft or A.E. Van Vogt excelled in this sort of thing. And I I kind of enjoy that because of that. Uh, Well, I I totally agree. I love this book. Uh, I thought it was great. I also think it would be – so I was talking to one of my friends about this book and about this podcast and how I thought that this book – was the best written of the three. Like the writing is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's atmospheric. Uh, but the plot is inconsequential. The characters are inconsequential. And I can understand how that would drive people crazy and just hate this book. Because if you're reading it for a plot and characters, you're just going to be like, what the hell did I just read? This makes no sense. And now I'm angry. Uh, but and that's why I don't think if, – if I could wave a magic wand and award uh, the nebula to something, I would not give it to Annihilation because I feel like the nebula award like shows up on a cover and someone who's sci-fi curious will pick it up and then they will read this book and possibly never read any science fiction ever again. <laughs> uh, and I don't want that to happen. So a little a more straightforward story would probably be better suited to win the nebula. Uh, but if if I had to pick the one that I love the most to win, I would I would pick Annihilation. Well, this might be. I mean, the Hugo last year they gave they nominated the Wheel of Time because they have this obscure rule about series. This might have been the case where they should have done that with this because all three books came out last year in this trilogy and are now out under one set of covers. And each one, it's interesting how he changed the approach for each book. And it's a very interesting experiment for the whole thing, and maybe that should have been the the nomination. Of course, we would have been reading a a 1,000-page book at that point. (laughs) Yeah, but I would be okay with that because Jeff Vandermeer is – he's a genius. Uh, I've been a fan of his since City of Saints and Mad Men. Me too. Which is also a beautiful book. Not a short book, but deservedly a long book. It also Uh, has fruiting bodies and mushrooms. 
Yeah, it, 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 Vandermeer so is an extremely weird author, uh, and that makes sense given all the anthologies on weird stuff he's done. Uh, it's clear that that's where he's at home, where it just kind of ripping apart reality a little bit. Um, and that's part of why I love about Annihilation, not least that it's, you know, part of it is that it's short, and so it it's nice that it's not a 10,000-page novel. Um, so I could I could really push through it, but it's his prose is really crisp, and his ideas are just like uh, the further you get into this book it's like going into a madhouse and i love that i love that about all of his work is a lot like that it's it's very uh surreal at times uh genre bending it's crazy uh he just does weird stuff with the, like the natural landscape i mean ob- this book is fairly obviously influenced by by florida uh, the Florida fauna, and I know he said in interviews that it, you know, he'd go out to the woods and like take hikes and see weird stuff in the woods, like, like weird otter creatures and stuff. I don't know if he's actually seen weird creatures, but that's what just what he says in interviews. But well, the boar, uh, the boar incident in the book is actually happened to him. Really? Boar. Yeah. Huh. I mean, he didn't shoot at it or whatever, but that that's directly from his own experiences. Um. And the uh, the the I think the writing or the tunnel sequence is what happened in his nightmare. So you know that would make sense. Yeah, the, he's got some strange strange dreams. <laughs> yeah, that, that tunnel is a whole metaphor for this book because the deeper you go into this book, the de- it's like de- going deeper into that tunnel, trying to read the words on that tunnel and trying to make sense of it. And there's that m- creature at the bottom. And it's just like it's just like you can't escape it. I listened to this as an audiobook driving back from Arkansas in the middle of our reading this listening to this in Arkansas, Missouri. And that was a very Ooh. odd experience. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm driving through backwards Arkansas listening to this. I tell you, that was a very odd way to experience this book. It was perfect. I, I mean, the only way it'd be more perfect if it was on the on the on the Florida coast where he wrote it, but. So this book, this book affected me strongly because I listened to it at just the right place to really get my get, really get feel into my bones. And like Sean, I've been reading his books and reading his books in City of Saints and Madmen. The original, not even the expanded one, the small one I had. Oh, way, way, okay. Yeah, because because it came out in two versions. It came in this small one, and it came in the big hardcover one. And I I read both of those, and so I, I've been exposed to his. To the spores of his fiction for a long, long time now, and also to spores of his comments on SF Signal, but that's a story Fred knows about. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the original spore spore recipient from him. Spore, yes, you are. But yeah, so this is, <laughs> I, I was, I was, re, I was, I mean, his his prose is just evocative. The, I mean, yeah, I mean, the characters are archetypes because they're only given as really as titles, and they're not really well characterized. Not even the biologist, but. Yeah, it's just, just just the sense of this world that he area X that he invokes. It's just haunting. I can see how it came out of a dream. Jason, I think you might have a different. <laughs> <laughs> We've been waiting. Uh, yeah, uh, I I think I agree that he is a very talented writer, and this is an incredibly well written book. I think there are images in it that are amazing. I um there are passages that I highlighted that I thought were really cool. I like the idea of who the biologist is, um, or at least says she is about, um, uh, you know, not, there's an interesting passage where she says, I, um, 
I'm not a religious or superstitious per- person. Uh, they might see it differently. I'm not those people. I'm just the biologist. I don't require any of this to have a deeper meaning, which I think is really interesting about this character, that this character is sort of accepting what she sees and not um, trying to transform it into something else, which is a, it's almost, you know, as a, as a reader or as a writer, right? It, it's almost like putting down your card of saying, so you can choose to view this on one level or you can choose to view it on another level. You decide. It's really an interesting gambit almost, I think, on, on the part of the writer. Um, so all that said, I, I came to the end and I thought, and I hate to make fun. I, I make fun of uh, Goodreads reviewers who spend the first three quarters of their review describing their rating system in detail. Um, <laughs> but I actually ended up being in that position where I was hovering over the uh, over the rating at the end of the book because I read it on my Kindle and thinking, and I literally thought, well, is this four stars or two stars? <laughs> and um, I I said it was two stars. And here's why. Although I think it is beautiful and it is dreamlike, there are two ways to interpret the phrase dreamlike. And one is, um, oh, and I wanted to mention it, it, it did bring back Lovecraft to me. It has got that feeling of, of, you know, strange happenings and horrible things are going to happen. And it's, it's weird and, and there's madness. And, and I thought that was kind of effective. But in the end, the dreamlike thing, you know, dreamlike thing can be this, this mood where things don't make sense and all sorts of things can happen. Dreams also don't make any sense. And you can say something is dreamlike and what it really is, is the author coming up with a whole bunch of different stuff and just slapping it into the book and saying, dream. And honestly, I felt the presence of the author a little bit too much for me to like this book. It felt to me like an exercise that there were interesting images stitched together, but for me, it didn't work for me. It felt artificial. It it really much felt like uh, he had, he had written some really interesting pieces about Florida, flora and fauna and some creepy things about this staircase and all of that and kind of slapped it all together but it didn't hold for me so you know i I, i'm I'm trying not to be unkind because i think he's i think his writing is beautiful but in the end it felt kind of like a con to me it it didn't i didn't buy into it so in the end i gotta say um it was way better written than several of the books on this list but i i can't say that i liked it i do sometimes enjoy lyrical i i don't require a plot and characters in every book I read. Like I said, I feel like there's a spell that can be evoked and it just, the spell broke for me. And I, I, I started thinking of it much more as if I was reading short stories from a fiction writing class and saying, you know, yes, you did put together five images from that dream you had last night <laughs> after you had a little too much Taco Bell. And uh, good for you. You're a good writer, but this doesn't, these are just images. So where, where else, where's the rest of it? The next two books are very different. I'll say that much. Well, anyway, I'm glad I read it, and I'm I'm also glad it was sh- I'm also glad it was short. Um, and I don't just mean that in an insulting way. I really like that it 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 moved and ended, and you know, more books should probably, as we said earlier, should probably take that to heart that they don't all need to be oh, yes. overstuffed. This is a lean, oh, yes. beautiful, beautifully written book that just you know, I didn't. I didn't think came together, but you know, I, I agree with you on all the other points that it is, he, he's a very good writer. Yes. I, I think that we all have reached an understanding and I'm just an awful That's person. True. Um, let's move on to the last book. <laughs> um, 
the Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. Um, it, it a book. If you talk about expectations, I had no expectations going in, but very early on, when you discover that this is a you know it's a fantasy novel and it's set in this elven realm and there are elves and goblins and there are uh, you know there's social hierarchies and there's histories of battles and things like that. I fe- I kind of felt like. It, there was a really nice setup here for what we've come to expect from a fantasy novel. And I'll just say, I was so delighted that none of that happened. And that yes. this this ended up being, this this is a story about a character who ends up finding himself by, quite by accident, <laughs> well, accident, quite, quite, <laughs> quite unexpectedly, let's put it that way, yes. as the emperor of this entire kingdom, um, the empire, whatever, uh, and and instead of it being like and then i mean there are assassination attempts in here but it's not like and then there was an assassination attempt and then the war and then there was a battle and all that instead it's really like how does this young person who's very bright but not well educated navigate this incredibly complex set of politics in order to survive and find out who he wants to be and that's it that's what the book is and I loved it. I really, I really loved it. I love being surprised by this book. And I also just loved the book itself and that that's what it was. And it, it was okay that this ended up being kind of, um, how, you know, how is this kid going to figure out how to have this job <laughs> instead of armies clash and, you know, any, it just, it wasn't necessary. It, it was a totally different kind of book, but I thought, I thought was, uh, I thought it was beautiful. So I, I, I loved it. What did, what did he, you all think? He just wants to build a bridge. He's just a bridge builder. Let him build the bridge. Bridges are fun. Come on. This is so different than her other novels. I mean, I, I read her novels as Sarah Monette, who's the actual name of the author, years ago. And this is so different. I mean, not in the terms of quality. She's because because she had she had health problems. And so she had been writing for many years. So so this is actually a return to form for her. For, for her, I mean, she she'd written a couple of novels too with Elizabeth Bear, and those had trailed off for a while because of her health condition. And so I was thinking, okay, so we're gonna get nice, we're gonna get nice dark fantasy, right? No, because her her other novels can get really dark and twisted and complicated politics. And we have complicated politics here, but it's a much smaller story. It's about about a kid who winds up becoming emperor by accident and eventually just building a bridge and trying to survive. And I appreciate that because it's not a story about the the whole fate of the kingdom of the world at stake for a yeah. change. It's a it's a smaller scale, smaller stake story, and we can have those. And she executed it excellently. I, I mean, but the only thing this thing didn't lack this lacked, and it was a map. I but then again, I'm a, oh. I'm a map. I'm a, I'm a map partisan. I'm a map partisan. Everyone knows that everything's better with maps. Everything's better. It would be nice <laughs> to know where some of these things were. And I saw online somewhere she had like a, a half drawn, half assed map that she had posted somewhere. But I would like to have a proper map for, map for this world because that's that's just part of my expectations of fantasy reader. But yeah, I was delighted that this was not. What it was not what, as you said, was it looked like it was going to be. It was it was a much different, more framed story and elegantly well told for it. Well, um, I, I in general do not read that much fantasy because I just don't like it as much as science fiction. So I went in expecting this to be the weakest of all the reads, and I think it was the, just about the strongest of all the reads for many of the same reasons that you 
mentioned Jason. I mean, like I was expecting, okay, guy's going to become emperor, and at some point there's going to be a big battle because somebody's going to invade, and he'll have to lead the troops in battle, and he'll get killed, and everybody will be sad. No, that doesn't happen. You know, he'll go on a quest because he's the emperor and he has to save the kingdom. Well, that doesn't happen. None of the the <laughs> usual tropes happen. It was sort of like last year when we read the uh, the Goblin and the Jinn, and they had that scene. Yeah. Where the uh, the one the the gin makes the uh, the the map that's on the ceiling of the apartment. You walk in, and when the light hits it the right way, you see the uh, the hills and the valleys and everything. You know, this is that the same mm-hmm. thing happened to me when I read this and I, the thing with the bridge, with the little model of the bridge. And he's so fascinated with the workmanship. You know, it's it's it, it was scenes like that that really uh, captivated me. And uh, I mean, I had trouble with the names. Yeah, this would, got, this would be a yeah, great audio book because the the, the words well, are... Well, uh, no, no, no. I no? read it I, as an audio book and it didn't help me. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. It's like, who the hell are these people? It's very Which complicated. I uh, like, yes. I, I, yes. I, that, that would be my one criticism as I felt like I like that you set up this whole world that seems foreign, but I, it actually got in my way all of these complicated proper names that yeah. were just so hard to keep track of and, and even think about how you would pronounce yeah. them. And I even knew Hungarian people. So a lot of these names seem very Hungarian to me, but yeah. still it was too many. It was just, there were just too many yeah. names. Yeah, but this society and the, like the the fact that he had different rooms for different audiences. Yeah. And, you know, different, yeah. I mean, just living in the castle and trying to make friends, that whole thing with the guards, you know, we can't be your friends because we have to guard you and we, and if we're friends, we might not react as fast. I mean, it was just so much that I enjoyed about this. I like that Maya, the the main character, is a is smart. Like yes. he, the the smart but uneducated and you know is such a great thing to do because it would be very easy for him to be to be, you know, portrayed as being dumb or, you know, or or being like so impossibly smart that he can figure everything out right away. And it's neither of those things. It's a person who is smart and trying to learn, but there's too much to learn and not enough time to learn it. And I think that's a really right. interesting place for the character to be. Ask questions and he learns. Yeah. And it, you know, he even tries to like, you know, the biggest enemy, quote unquote, I think would be his cousin in this book. And he even tries to, you know, tries to reconcile, tries to find something to do with him. And whether the guy like likes it, accepts it, you know, is up to him. But Meyer tries. You know, he, he his uh, was it his is it his aunt or whatever is involved in the plot against him. Right. He doesn't like banish everybody. He adopts basically the kids and takes care of them, brings them into his home. You know, it's not like you know he slaughters everybody like in a typical Game of Thrones episode or something. <laughs> It's a very different look at Empire than the Empire of the Raj. Yes. Yes. Oh, not enough tea. <laughs> not enough tea, though. Less yeah. tea. There is tea, though. There is, there is at breakfast, yes, there is there's, tea. There's tea. Yes. <laughs> no sandwiches, though. So Jack McDevitt fans, steer, <laughs> steer clear. Yeah, I mean, I, I, overall, I enjoyed it. Uh, the thing that I had a lot of issue with was the second the characters started doing the thee and thou and canst and wouldest stuff – which I suspect a lot of people didn't have an issue with that. Uh, that just every time they started doing that, I started rolling my eyes. Well, it's a it, the way the way they put it. I mean, it, it is sort of like what Anne Leckie does in the ancillary books, which is it, it, she's trying to get across language differences. So the idea there is that they they've got like in like in German or something. They've got they've got like the formal and the informal, and right. it's all about how you speak. Like they all speak plural. 
when they're with the emperor. That's how you're supposed to do it. And when you go to thee and thou, you're speaking down to somebody. I finally figured that out and I was like, okay, well, this isn't just ridiculous now. At least I understand why. Because at first it was really incongruous. It's like, why are you talking like this now? But in the end, I think that was what was intended is to she was trying to show off um, like like uh, levels of of uh, uh, are you talking down or up to somebody or are they at your level with these different ways of addressing them? Because that's an emperor who cares about that, I guess. I guess that could have been done better. Maybe a little more artfully. That, uh, I could I could buy that. Or at least made very clear from the start that that's what's happening. Because the second it happened, I just I. It's jarring. I had a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I just I I hate when people use thou and canst and wouldest as though they're writing like Shakespeare, and I'm like, oh, it's not. No, let's not do that, please. Yeah, that that also goes to the goes to the names and stuff. She's very interested in language and and its forms and how people use it and its constructions. And so, and may, maybe sometimes it's a little off putting with that for Sean for the these thou and cants and for you, Jason, for and you. Uh, Fred with with the names. I mean, I mean, she's got she's she's got a vision in her mind, and maybe sometimes it goes a little too far. Uh, I enjoyed it greatly. I believe once again in a magical world where I am awarding the nebulas uh, that this, in fact, would win the nebula uh, because I just thought it was delightful. Uh, I liked the main character. Uh, I will echo everything that everyone else said about how you know you go in reading, inspecting. Okay, well, it's this. You know, this little upstart, well, he's not really an upstart, this kind of forgotten kid that the uh, the emperor didn't want to have anything to do with and no one ever thought would be emperor because there are th- he has three brothers and so clearly he's never going to uh, become the emperor and then they all die. There's so. an, in a horrible airship accident, I should say, exactly. <laughs> thereby checking off an important box on the incomparable. Well, are there Zeppelins? Zeppelins. Yes, yes. Zeppelins. Zeppelins. There are Zeppelins in the Goblin Emperor. Ping. <laughs> yeah he's a footnote he's never intended to be anyone and in fact mm-hmm. has been locked away somewhere being abused essentially yeah and i thought that that relationship was really interesting uh and how you know he's being raised quote unquote by uh some kind of vague relative slash courtier uh and not very well and then suddenly the power dynamic shifts uh, and he's the emperor, and now his uh, uncle, I guess, was uh, wants to, you know, he's back in court, and he's trying to curry favor, and Mia is resisting just using all of his power to just punish this man yeah. for all the horrible things he's done to him, and I just thought that was fascinating. I like, I think it's a good good trait in an emperor and i think this is the point of it obviously in the in the story is to you can you can literally just command for people to be taken away and killed or locked up or somewhere his but his childhood was so awful that he fights against it at every step even with people who have done pretty awful things and i i mean that mm-hmm. that's a really fast way to to get some understanding of the decency of the character that that the that that Maya resists doing that, but I thought it was really interesting, especially with this one character who has just abused him for his entire life, and he he tries very hard to get him away without like like doing to him what was done to him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, other thoughts? I, I I agree with Scott. By the way, I I would I would hand my magical uh, nebula to the Goblin Emperor. <laughs> yeah. It was my yeah. it was my favorite too. But yeah, the Goblin Emperor was my favorite, followed closely by Annihilation and then Ancillary. Sort of, I had to rank my top three Nebula picks. It would oh. be those three. Let's do more ranking. 
Uh, Sean, you're all wrong. What? Are, what's, all wrong. what tell, tell us your rankings. Uh, <laughs> Annihilation at the top, followed by Three Body Problem, Ancillary Sword, then Goblin Emperor. Interesting. Yeah. Not not so into the god the these and thous really uh, just got to you. That pulls me out of almost any fantasy story when unless unless it's like literally Shakespeare doing it, in which case I'm like, oh, that's cool because Elizabeth Bear has done that bit where she's had Shakespeare actually say the these and thous, and I'm like, yeah, well if it's Shakespeare yeah. doing it, I'm cool. Other rankings. Fred, did you rank them? I would, uh, tied for first was uh, Vandermeer and this one. Uh, second, Three Body. Third was Anne Lecky. All right. For me. And then other books were also listed. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, there was not a single book that I disliked. I enjoyed them all. It's just that I felt these were better than the rest. So, you know. Yeah, and there's only one book I actually actively disliked, so I should say that. Right. And Scott, what about you? Uh, there were two books I actively disliked. Uh, I would give, I would rank Goblin, Emperor, uh, Annihilation, Three Body Problem, Ancillary Sword, and then others. The other others. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fair enough. And uh, for me, yeah, I would be Goblin, Emperor, um, Ancillary Sword three body um and and uh, other books other books would be below that <laughs> well i want to see where does coming home and annihilation where do well, they pro- rank? I, I would probably put annihilation next only because it is so well written even though ultimately my feelings about it, i i have this occasionally with bo- books and movies where i where i think about the book a lot or the movie and I, and i i appreciate that it made me really think about it and then I say, in the end, I, I don't think it worked. I, you know, I think it was a failure. I, I didn't like it. And, and those are better than the ones that I'm just like, oh, come on. This isn't very good. Um, and so I recognize, even though I ended up not, kind of not liking it, I recognize the, uh, the value in it. And that, that I understand why other people would like it a lot more. So I'd probably, if I had to rank it, I'd probably put it above Trial by Fire. And then I got to put poor old Jack McDevitt down at the bottom, even though I like so many <laughs> oh. of his books. Because it's just not, it's not very good. And I, I, and I would say that, that, that um I have issues with Trial by Fire and Coming Home, but I read them both without much trouble. And I actually think that like Trial by Fire, my problems are very much like, not that I didn't like the book, but I felt like it kind of went on too long and there was just kind of too much in that story and it could have could have moved a lot faster and uh, I think would have been better for it. But not that I, I, you know, wanted to throw it out the window or anything like that, which <laughs> since I read on the Kindle would be a problem. if I Waste of a Kindle. <laughs> Yeah, I'd that copy it onto a memory mm-hmm. stick and then throw that out the window or something. <laughs> really not so effective. I, I, have, I have a question for the, the folks who, who, who read Jack McDevitt and like it. Because I read Coming Home, and while I didn't like it, I thought, these are characters that I could picture in a story that I would like. So what uh, for someone who has only read Coming Home, what other Jack McDevitt book should I read that will make me happy? Seeker? Is much better. Um, I don't know. Maybe, what do you think about giving him the, one of the Priscilla novels? Yeah, I think the I think the Priscilla Hutchins novels are better than Alex Benedict. Yeah. And, I agree. Um, the first one of those is Engines of God, which is pretty good. I really like Deep Six because it is as crazy high stakes space adventure as you're ever going to get because they're literally on a planet that is about to be hit, like swallowed whole by a rogue 
gas giant that's just passing through the system. So they so they literally they land on this planet and find evidence of a previous extraterrestrial civilization there. But there's this huge ticking clock that they can't do anything about, which is a planet's going to hit it. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, that's just so outrageous. And yet I really I like a memorable and interesting. And and so I, I, you know, those books, the Priscilla Hutchins books, I'd say um, are, are there. I, I think they're all but always better like than the comparable alex benedict book but seeker is a good alex benedict book i also have a weak spot for ancient shores which is neither which is which is not neither series yeah stands alone same with uh, hercules text and moonfall those are both independents yeah so you can enter read either of them without needing to know the series or a series all right anything else that we should mention before we go i feel like we've you know it's fun I find it fun. It is a lot of, you know, assigned reading in a way. We did a podcast about that. But I, I did, um, I, I, you know, I enjoy reading. It's nice having a short list to read from. It, it, it is. It's, it can't be all you read in a year, but it is kind of nice to have somebody say, hey, we think these six books are worth reading. You should read those. I, I enjoy doing that. It, it makes us, it makes us to quote uh, the Kuchri podcast, part of the science fiction conversation to, to engage with books which are nominated. Yeah. And, and think about them. Yeah, and somebody obviously thinks that they're valuable, and and that that's a nice endorsement to be to say, all right, well, and, and you might read something you wouldn't normally. You know, I don't. I'm not sure I would have ever. I, I know I would never have read the Goblin Emperor ever because I'm not a fantasy no. reader if it hadn't been nominated, oh, yeah. and I really loved it. So that there you go. So I'm a dummy, and I should. I guess I should read more fantasy. So I guess I should start on that. And Three Body Problem, I'd read a lot about, but I I'm not sure when I would have ever gotten to gotten to it, and instead I got to read it, and that was fun. So I hope you guys enjoyed the assigned reading too. More or less. Most of it. Most of it. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That works. Hey, that... Five out of the six I enjoyed for different reasons. Mm-hmm. One of them I did not. That's not a bad batting average. Last year I feel like we were very lucky to have eight that were all pretty decent. Not if you ask Scott. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so the, the, there we are. We have we have reached the end. We have covered these books. Um uh, you can look on the internet and find out which one won the, the award. <laughs> yes, we'll check, leave that. Check your local internet. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. Or I'll dub in a thing here that says, hello, this is Jason for the future. <laughs> the winner of the Nebula Award for Best Novel was <gasps> Annihilation. <laughs> that was me from the future right there. All right, I would like to thank my uh, my my reading guests for, for joining us Uh Fred Kish, thank you so much for being back on and also for listening for a billion episodes as you have. Oh, thank you. And I invite everyone over to the Three Horsemen and uh, to get a different view on science fiction. You should check it out. Paul Weimer, Skiffy and Fanti, and SF Signal, too, a little bit, right? And I've only listened to a million, not a billion episodes. Oh, that's okay. And, I, 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 and it's Fred, as I said last year, it was Fred's fault I started listening to The Incomparable in the first place. So thanks, Fred. Fred Fred is like the Johnny Appleseed. He's like patient zero of The Incomparable. He was there so early <laughs> and has spread our disease far and wide. Um, Sean Duke, Skiffy and Fanti, and of course your new movie podcast, Totally Pretentious. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. See, we're plugging things. And, and Scott McNulty, host of Random Trek. Thank you for what? being here. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be on an incomparable episode. I feel like I haven't been on the incomparable for a long time. So. Well, we'll have to rectify that. And I, I know all my fan were clamoring for <laughs> it. So, yes. Uh, and maybe you could eat a sandwich and read a good Jack McNabbit novel sometime. <laughs> I hope so. 
Until then, thanks to everybody out there. Hope you uh, got some good book ideas in this episode. We will see you next week. Now the news brought to you by Chockful of Coffee, the only coffee with that extra special and secret ingredient, more coffee. <laughs> Chockful of coffee, it's caffeinated treat. Caffeinated. Chockful of coffee, it's the Monday morning. That's the incomparable radio theater of the air coming later this year to a podcast player near you. But visit theincomparable.com slash radio now for a special live episode. Caffeinated treat. Caffeinated.